everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming in Stan Phelps, who is a TEDx speaker, Forbes contributor, IBM futurist, and certified speaking professional that focuses on the future of customer experience and employee engagement. Throughout his career, Stan has held many marketing leadership roles with Adidas, International Management Group, the PG of America, and Synergy. He's the best-selling author of the Goldfish series of books, which all focus on the little ways to drive differentiation, increase loyalty, and promote positive word of mouth. He has spoken at over 700 events in 21 countries. Stan holds a JD and MBA from Villanova University and a certificate in achieving breakthrough service from Harvard Business School. He lives in Cary, North Carolina with his wife, Jennifer, and two boys, Thomas and James. So I hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Stan. And without further ado, please welcome in Stan Phelps. Stan, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you, man. Yeah, great, great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you further. I uh, Obviously, you know, we teed it up a few months ago and got to know each other a little bit. And you know, your story is really intriguing to me. And I wanted to dive into that deeper because I think it's really helpful for the audience, I mean, even myself, obviously, but just folks listening in that are trying to get started and, you know, take the traditional path of they go into corporate America, they try to work their way up the ranks, but they want to do some other things and they don't really know how to make that switch. And you've done that successfully. So I wanted to dig into that. So uh, excited to chat with that a little bit. You know, I don't know if anyone has said this, I'm sure they, they have, but when I met you, I don't think I told you this when we played, but when I met you and I kind of was thinking about our interview today, there's one word that really came up over and over again, and it's confidence. Mm. And you seem extremely confident, confident in your decision-making, confident in obviously being on stage, confident in how you speak um, about various topics. And I'm curious to maybe if we can start here, is when you made the jump, and maybe you can share that story a little bit back you know, sure. 10, 10, 11 years ago, were you confident at that time in what you were trying to do? Or was there like a big ugh, kind of leap of faith in that approach? If if I had any confidence back then, it was probably false confidence, Brian. It was, de- it was definitely a leap. Uh, I had been writing for, you know, two, two and a half years prior to making the jump. My first book had come out. I started to get asked to speak abroad and here in the U.S. Um, and it, it gave me enough to have the confidence to make the leap and and to to try to make that move. But I, I would say if there was any confidence, it was probably mostly false. When you think about that, though, was there, I mean, and I guess even if we went back further, let's go five to 10 years before the jump. Sure. Had you always wanted to do your own thing at some point? Or was this kind of a new endeavor that had come up maybe a year or two prior when you started writing, started to branch out? No, it was it was definitely in in my mind in terms of making a potential jump at some point. I always knew I wanted to kind of do my own thing. Since what I remember writing down my goals when I was like 18, and one of them was to write a book, hmm. and and you know, kind of one thing led to another for. I was number two at an agency, and part of that was doing some thought leadership and speaking. And I really, you know, I really enjoyed that. The the times I had the opportunity to get on the platform and and to share kind of best practices or insights. And so all of those things led to, yeah, just looking for opportunities to get better. Uh, and my writing led to more and more insights. And at some point, I, I knew I, I couldn't be on the fence any longer. I needed, either needed to make the jump yeah. or I needed to go back and be committed. And to me, it was, you know, that decision was clear. I needed to make the jump. Well, and I think you had told me there's no right time. But at that point, like, how did you know it was the time? Well, I, I'd spent... <laughs> the better part of a little over two years writing my first book, it came out. I was starting to get asked to, to speak and, 
for paid professional engagements. And I thought there might be enough of a market there. I, I wanted to write more. I felt like I, my mission was to, or purpose was to get people to think differently about marketing. And I had been a marketer for the better part of 25 years at that point. Um, and, and yeah, it, and it, it was a gut check. You know, I didn't, I didn't make the jump till six months after my first book came out, but I certainly saw in that time that I thought there was enough of an interest and demand to make the jump. And was there any opportunity or, or at least when you were, cause I think you'd said you'd, as you transitioned, like it was not, it wasn't a rip the bandaid off. There was kind of a slow progression, but did you ever consider, Hey, I'm going to stay at the agency and then I'm just going to do some book stuff, some speaking on the side. Right. Like how, what consideration did you put to that? Yeah, I, I really didn't give that a ton of thought other than I knew that I needed to rip the Band-Aid off at some point. And I think I'd share with you, you know, the agency came back and they said, hey, would you be willing to do, give us three days a week, right? Instead of going from a 0% salary, I, I could stay at 60%. And it would, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, that allowed me the time and the runway to get this thing going. Um, and what I learned after about seven months of doing that was you, I have this saying, and I don't know how politically correct it is anymore, but you can't be half pregnant when you make the jump, right? If, if you know, even in my mind saying, well, if I'm working three days for the agency, the other four days. I can work on my business. You're not doing either credit when you try to straddle the fence. Right. That's a good point. When, when you think about, like, if you're talking to someone that's considering, hey, I have this idea, or maybe they've started a business on the side, what, I guess when you think about, like, what you've learned, if you look back 10, 11, 12 years, is there anything you would ask them to consider before they make the jump? Some things they should think about maybe that you wish you thought about more? Wow. Great, great question. I mean, I think you have to have, if you're doing it like I was kind of on the side, I think you have to have some markers or some, some successes that, that give you, the, the belief that you can do it. Um, so to me, you're looking for kind of beacons along the, you know, I know you like the compass philosophy. You know, you're looking for these little beacons, these little lights that tell you that something is, is bigger down the road. Uh, I think that's important. I think it's also important to know that, especially for me being a professional speaker, people plan their events you know, three, six, nine, sometimes 12 months in advance, you know, that's a long time sometimes to ramp up. So you, the, you know, we talk about this term of runway, you need to make sure that you've got the runway um, to start the flywheel and get things working, especially if you're any type of business that's word of mouth, you're really going to have to hustle in the beginning. Um, to get the flywheel effect start, you know, get the flywheel moving to be able to get those referrals. Um, yeah. When did you, so you mentioned, obviously you were writing a book and that was one of your goals to write a book. When did you actually think about starting to speak? Well, again, from, for the, in my role for the agency, I would go and I would speak at conferences on behalf of the agency. So, you know, I would submit, potential breakout sessions or even keynote type of sessions. And um, so I, I was kind of, you know, learn, you know, not, not building the plane as, as I, you know, as I was trying to fly it, but it certainly gave me the grounding that I could do this. And more importantly, that I got energy and, and it fulfilled, you know, something for me. Um, I think in anything that you do, one, you have to have a passion for it. Um, and you really have to enjoy what you're doing and get energy back from it. You know, because when you're starting out, you've got to grind. 
And if you're not getting that energy back, it becomes difficult. Well, and you bring up a good point too. And this is, I've always encouraged a lot of folks that are in corporate jobs, wanting to do their own thing, utilize that opportunity. And you bring up a great point. Oh, hey, I go to conferences or there's different shows. If you want to speak, let's use that example. Why not put in to try to speak? And now you start getting experience while you're still working at the company to even see if you like it. And I think that's that's with a variety of things. That's not just with speaking. That could be maybe it's writing, maybe it's podcasting, maybe it's doing whatever. Could be you're in marketing, but you want to do sales. Okay, well then go talk to sales and try to get in that game a little bit. And I think we can kind of use that to our advantage if we're willing to step outside the, the comfort zone, right? A- a- absolutely. I I think also you know for me wanting to be an author, you know, it started out for me blogging. And I, I saw blogging as a really useful tool because you would put something out there in kind of bite-sized pieces, um, but you would get feedback on it. Um, I was able to syndicate my blog, which got it out to kind of a bigger audience uh, to help kind of build my brand and, and a little bit of recognition of who I was as a thought leader. Yeah, so I think getting those, getting those reps in early before you make the jump is, is really important. I also wanted to go back. I just remembered it. Cause I, th- I think this would be helpful for folks listening in is you weren't 23 year old out of college, like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to do it. Like you were married with young kids at home when you made, yeah, the jump. I was, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was early forties with when I made the jump, my, my two boys were five and six mm-hmm. years old. And so they were, they were going that summer, they were going to be a kindergartner and a first grader. And uh, not only did we start on the move, we ended up picking the family up from where we lived in Connecticut and moving to North Carolina. How did you deal with, uh, from the internal, the mentality of identity shift? Because you had this career you were this known identity, right? And, the, and now you're going to be something totally different. That, was that something you struggled with? Or did you kind of use that and, and I guess use it as a, uh, as a launching point where you're like, hey, this could be an opportunity? Well, I, I've been very, very um, purposeful in trying to build my network. So LinkedIn is a great, I see LinkedIn as a great tool. It's something as I look back when I was in my 20s, I wish I had mm-hmm. as a tool. Um, and so building up connections, you know, thousands of connections that I knew that when I made the jump that, uh, you know, I'd I'd have a base of people that have followed what I've been doing over the last two or three years prior. And, you know, they're the first people I went to to say, this is the new direction. And part of that was great from having that base, but also sharing that made me accountable, Brian, you know, to what I was doing and what I was trying to become. And I remember very early on, I made the decision to do a newsletter. Now, I, I don't have a newsletter today, but I, I had a monthly newsletter and I'll never forget it. I, I, purposely put in to that newsletter each month the calendar of what I was doing the following month speaking wise Mm. and that was just a huge motivator for me to say look I know I'm gonna have to share this with everyone I've told I've made this journey and I better have four to eight speaking engagements you know in that calendar because that's what I've professed to be doing Right. And and it just really, you know, for me, it gave me that accountability and focus to make sure that I was continuing to get the flywheel working. Those early connections, did you reach out just to say, hey, I'm doing this new thing? Did you were you asking for potential speaking engagement like some folks that were in that world? What did you use those connections for? Or was it a mixture, I guess? Yeah, I, I would say it was a mixture. I mean, I, I some of my first engagements were from connections that I had I had met either through social media or from prior engagements from the 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 agency I was part of. You know, I, I think very very 
I'm a big believer in what I call the vouch for principle. So it's so important, you know, if you reach out to somebody that doesn't know you from Adam, you know, who are you to that person? You're, you're no one. But if you reach out to people that know you and can vouch for you, um, and assuming that you have a good reputation and you've been a meaningful connection for them, they'll go out of their way to help you and, and vouch for you. And that's what you need in the beginning. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I look back, you know, you, you can have goals, but once you start to write them down and secondly, once you start to share those goals with other people, two things happen when you've written them down, they rarely change, right? You don't, you, sometimes we keep it in our mind and as we start to go towards that goal it becomes difficult and we maybe reduce the goal or lower it a bit and we maybe yeah. we do it so much so that when we get to that lower point we don't have a sense of accomplishment and second when you tell people what your goal is one you not only become accountable but people want to help especially if they know what you want to do and um that was a big part for me um, of my success early was having that network and being very clear on what I wanted to do. And again, not, not even asking for help, but knowing that people want to help if they know what you're, you're after. I find, I mean, I know myself like struggle sometimes with that of sharing, not just from the accountability, but it's kind of I don't know, I guess maybe partly being like a people pleaser, like almost scared to go the other, like, oh, I, this is like a burden I'm putting them if I'm asking them of something or sharing that. Did you did you find that at all? Or do you find that when you talk with folks about, you know, maybe how to overcome that fear of reaching out to people that could potentially be helpful connections? Look, if you, I, this goes back to confidence. If you If you have something that you know that is of value, and people will benefit by it, and you believe it, um, then to me, you know, sales isn't a bad word. Sales is, um, you know, I feel like I can help people. And to me, it would be selfish if you had the ability to help people and to provide value if you held it back. And I know that's a weird way of thinking about it, but it is a bit selfish if you if you believe in what you do yeah. and you know you can you can provide value and help people to hold that back would be would be worse than 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 not reaching out right it's yeah maybe it's a little bit of framing for you but you have to believe it yeah well and you start to realize like what's the worst that's going to happen they don't get back to you maybe they say i can't help you okay you know, it's not the not the end right. of the world, really, uh, when it's all said and done. And again, it comes back to like when you talk about sales, it's even like when you reach out to someone and they surprise you by saying they will help. Where you're like, oh, my God, I'm not I'm not sure if they will. And then it's like, oh, wow. OK, if I just do this more and more, what could happen? So that gives you right. some confidence too. you know, sometimes stepping outside. So, yeah. And I, I also think that there's something to realize and you're not going to ask everyone, you know, I you know, there's a there's a principle within nature and in business that your top 20% of your connections are going to drive 80% of the value, right? And the converse of that is 80% of your connections only will generate 20% of the value, right? That's the converse. So that it's the law of what's called the, the vital few and the trivial many. And what I would what I would counsel anyone is to really try to figure out who your vital few is um, and not try to think that you need to go out to everyone within your network. That's a good point. All right, I want to transition if we can to speaking because anytime and I, I don't have a ton of folks that always just do a lot of speaking as much as you're doing. So I kind of want right. to jump into this if I can because, so someone wants to start speaking. We've talked about this a little bit um, in the past, but 
what are the steps they should be taking to think about speaking? Because I, again, I think going from my own side of things, right? You have the fear of speaking potentially, but then there's this whole business side of speaking, which is, <laughs> there's a lot there. You could take it from whatever angle you want, but that's kind of how I think about on both sides of it, the, the act of speaking, but then the business side of it. Right, right. Um, yeah, so there's no, there's what's amazing about the industry I'm in, a couple of things. One is, Brian, I make my living from most people's greatest fear. That Think about that for a second, right? Number one fear for people is public speaking. The number two fear in some studies is dying, right? So, so but what's interesting, there's no, there's no bar in terms of saying that you're a speaker. In fact, go on LinkedIn and type in keynote speaker. Um, you'll get thousands of people that come up. The ability to leverage it from a, a business perspective, I think is an interesting one. And I tell people there's only three types of speakers. Um, I tend to be in probably the smallest fraction of speakers out there in the fact that I would consider myself a pure speaker. So I do workshops, I do keynotes, I don't do coaching, I don't do consulting. By far, there are very few people that make their living. And I and I don't even know if I'd recommend to people to try to go my route. Um, because you probably want a very diverse, you probably want a more diversified business. And, and then, so if that the first type is a pure speaker, the second type is somebody who does coaching or consulting, but they also do paid professional speaking, whether that's keynotes or workshops or, or virtual programs. And, um, you know, speaking might be a big part of their business, but it's not all of their business. And then the third type, and this is probably the biggest, is people that are consultants or coaches primarily, but from a thought leadership perspective, they use speaking as a tool to kind of develop their business and grow their business. Hmm. And, and so the, the approach is going to be different in each of those scenarios. One, if, you know, public, if prof paid professional speaking is the only thing you do, you realize that you can only pretty much do it for one person on every day, especially when it's in person, right? The, the exception would be to do multiple virtual. And, and when it's in person, and I, and I would say now we're probably at 60 to 70% back in person for events um, and for, for workshops, you also have to factor that you have to get somewhere to be able to do it. So you have to be very, you know, I'll, I'll, I've spoken in 21 different countries. If like next month, I'll go to Malaysia. If I go to Malaysia, there's nothing else I can do for about three or four days before and maybe two or three days after my engagement, because I've got to get there. I probably have to have a, you know, a rest or a buffer day. I do my engagement. I come back from, from Asia. So you have to realize that there's limited inventory. You've got one seat on a plane that you can sell each day. Those other two categories, because there's other coaching or consulting that you can build around it, you have a little bit more flexibility. You're not doing it as often. You're not relying on it as a big part of your income. You can probably be a little more... Um, a little more open on who you who you speak to um so i i just think it's different i think it's it's a it's a someone described this to me they they said it's it's a really hard way to make an easy living yeah. um and most people could do it but i think to the point that you're saying a friend of mine who's very successful as a speaker he goes yeah you could do it but can you sell it? 
Well, I think that's the other that, thing. Yeah, right. It's can you get on stage is one thing, and maybe you're actually good, but then you also you have to create a business out of it to do that. Right. Right. It's. I would tell people that you know to to be successful, you. It's like a three-legged stool. One, you have to have great content, right? And that's important from a thought leadership perspective. You have to have content that solves a problem that people are willing to pay for. So that's one leg on the stool. The second leg on the stool is that you have to be engaging on the platform and deliver it in an engaging and an enter when I say entertaining, like keeping the intention of the audience, right? And doing it in a way that people enjoy. Um, and that's the second leg. The third leg is, to your point, the business side of it. So you've got to be able to market and sell it. And if any of those legs on that stool, Brian, are, are you know, very short, or or non-existent, you know what happens with that stool. Yeah, yeah. It, so, it, yeah. what well, I think you're in a you, you made a great point there of like you, you can't just have one. It can't be just a great marketer and get out there because if you get on stage, your content's gonna stink. No, you, you got to have here's all the thing, of it. If yeah. you've got my, one of my speaker friends, he says you could have the chocolate covered cure to cancer, right? You've yeah. got amazing content, but if you get up and you're flat. And you lose people's attention and you don't have the ability to command the room and be engaging. That's going to sink you. Yeah. If, if you could be Tony Robbins level, amazing. But if the message is not solving a problem and it's, you're not going to get hired. So I, you know, a, a guy who's the current board chair for NSA, he said, you know, to be successful, you only have to do four things. And I would say you probably have to have a fifth, but here's his four. World-class content delivered in an engaging way. You have to be easy to work with, meaning you can't be like a diva. And four, and this sounds so simple, he goes, you got to finish on time. Right, you're a professional. Right. Um, and it, I would say number five is you've got to be, you've got to be different. You've got to stand out in the marketplace. Well, I think, especially, I would agree if you're like trying to. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure if you just someone's just like, oh, we just need a few people, come on over, like it doesn't matter. But if they're actually, you're trying to have like a big group and you're trying to really push them along and have it engaging. Yeah. I think you have to differentiate with your message. You can't just be status quo. I definitely agree with that because we can all think of the top speakers we've seen or Ted talks we've seen or whatever. It's always some really engaging individual with great content that commands the right. room. Right. And, and they finish on time. So there's a lot of good points. Right. There. If, if the, the Ted speaker goes 19 minutes, yeah. you don't see them. Yeah, exactly. Cause you have to be 18 or less, right? You can, and and that's that's rule that's a rule that unfortunately I see even professional speakers um, will violate. And you think about it: if you're running an event, and you've sold time to exhibitors, and that's the time for the attendees to go to the trade show, and you've just cut that break in half. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and what? and it's a small, you know, it's, it's I talked about the vouch for principle. And that's why you have to be easy to work with. And I would say easy is the wrong way. You don't want people to have to, to go to a lot of effort when they work with you. You want to show up early. You want to stay late. You want to provide value. Um, yeah. Word travels, right? And you want to be referable. In terms of the, let's talk about the fear of speaking. So actually getting up there, and this could be someone that's doing a presentation to their executive leadership or their, you know, whatever, right. they're doing a, a pitch to investors. Is there anything you've learned that may be the most helpful in terms of practicing to becoming a better speaker? Yeah, so the, there's, this is a double-edged sword. 
No one was born a speaker. If anyone tells you that they're natural at it, Brian, they're they're like, what look at their nose because they're lying to you. Right? We were we were not born speaking. It is and that's the great news about it. It's a skill that you can get better at. It. And and so there are two elements in my mind of of getting better as a speaker. One is to develop the platform skills so you can be what I what I call loud, not loud volume wise, but loud from keeping the attention of the audience. Um, and there are ways to be able to do that. And then the second part is being clear when you speak. And that's about how do you organize your message in a way that the people in the audience can can share back that message in their own words. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You, you don't want to overcomplicate it where they can't remember it. Right. You, you you don't want, and a lot of times you see people they overstuff the presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably learned from you remember the days of Schoolhouse Rock. There's a magic number, and the magic number is three. You need a central idea or main idea when you what what do you want as the main idea for people to take away, and then two, maximum you can have three different points that you bring up to reinforce that idea. And, you know, where you see people get in trouble is, oh, I'm going to share all 10 elements of this. No, people are not going to remember that. You're not going to get through it. It's too much. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, the, the the biggest myth of communication um is the idea that it actually happened, right? Finishing your presentation isn't the goal when you speak. The goal is conveying a message in a way that the audience can take it in and share it back in their own words. And they need to know what to do with that message as well. So what's the call to action? What do they need to do as a consequence of that insight and that message. It, that's, would you agree then with, that's why like in putting a 50 page PowerPoint together with a million words on it is unnecessary. You'd rather have two or three slides and then tell some stories and share the message that way. Yeah, that's, we talked about the bit about being loud and, and putting your message in, conducting it in a way that you keep people's attention. And then being clear, how do you organize it? Yeah, both of those things um, are super important. So people people remember things through story. So that's a really popular way. Um, a lot of times people need time to think and to be able to take in the information. And so just like a good comedian won't start the next joke until people have kind of had the laugh. Mm -hmm. When you say something important, you need to be comfortable with with having a pause and let it sink in as opposed to stepping in on and, and, you know, rushing through. Yeah, people can either listen to you or they can read. And unfortunately, most people don't create slides. They create slide humans. What does that mean? A slide you mean is uh, a document in the form of oh, a slide. Okay. I got you. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you're going to give it to the audience after. But again, we read four times faster than the person can speak. And so one of the jokes is, you know, guns don't kill presentations bullets do and and especially have you seen some of these presentations where there's 10 different bullets on the slide brian yes and they make the mistake of bringing them all in at the same time so by the time they're talking about the first one everyone in the audience has already read through the 
the seventh bullet. Yeah. And only about 1% of people can multitask. So you might be hitting the 1% that have that ability. That's a, that's a great point there. On the, um, I want to ask one more thing on the, the business side of actually getting, and, I, and I'm sure this is a crapshoot, right? It's different for everyone, but what encouragement to actually get your first speaking gig? Is that, again, using your network, reaching out? Is that just putting in through companies and saying, oh, there are conferences and doing it that way? Any guidance you'd give? So the the best, there's, I what I've learned is there's no vehicle for speaking where you can put a dollar into something and get a dollar 25 back, right? That That, if there is, I haven't found it where you could guarantee put a dollar into something and you know you're going to get a a dollar 50 back in return. The only thing I've seen which is which is develops business is people seeing you on the platform. Right? And there's only ever in a, in a room at a given time only two people that know how much you got paid. Who do you think those two people are, Brian? Well, hopefully the speaker is one of them. Yeah, you know, right? <laughs> so you're in, you you're in the know. Who the other person is the person that hired you. Yeah. And and sometimes what's amazing, they're not even in the room. So there's only one person that knows how much you got paid. So I always say as as a bellwether, if you finish a talk and you've got, you know, six or seven people that want to talk to you, and, and maybe some of them will hand you a business card to say, oh, man, my team would be great to hear this message. Yeah. You know, is, is it possible for you to maybe come out to our organization? And I, you know, that type of stuff that you get mm -hmm. is what gets you to the point where people are willing to pay you to come in. Um, and there's no substitution for somebody who's been in the room with you to go, oh, man, Stan was engaging. The message was on point and people really enjoyed it. Right. They, they yeah, they learned something. They're going to take something back. Oh, man, I don't care how good your video is. I don't care how long your how great your pitch is and your write up if you submit for something. Nothing replaces somebody that's in the room that can vouch for you. Um, and so to get back to your point is when people say, hey, you know, I would love for you to come into my, you know, organization. That's when the conversation starts to begin. Do you have a budget? Who's going to be there? Where are you having it? You know, how much am I going to have to tailor the presentation? How long is it? You know, is it 45 minutes or is it a whole day? Um, and all of those things get to the point where you can start to talk about what the speaking honorarium is. Um, yeah. So w was that clear? Does that help? No, it's very, very helpful because I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, one, and I, maybe we, you know, maybe I'm naive about this. I don't think so because I'm thinking about the right path. Most people are not going to like, like for me, if I haven't spoken at all, they're not just going to say, oh yeah, Brian, I'm going to give you $10,000, come and speak. Like not going to happen, but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where use conferences, use, you know, smaller events to do free speaking, get your right. name out there. And actually you get to hone your skill, but then you also get to name out there. People may enjoy you, start making connections and then slow ball and, it, and it, it rolls into potential paying gigs, right? That's probably the best route to go, right? Yeah. And and here's the thing. I, I always tell people, it, for me, almost every engagement I do is different because there might be books involved. There's Sometimes there's travel, but sometimes it's local. So that affects it. How long I speak for how much it needs to be tailored to the audience and the amount of interviews I do before I get on the platform. So anything that I do is a follow-up potentially, 
any type of video promotion I might do to, to help promote attendance at the event, all that kind of plays into what the fee would be. Uh, and, and the nice thing, and I'll put it in a plug for, you know, when I, when I first started this and I moved to North Carolina, my, my platform skills needed to improve. So I became part of an advanced Toastmasters group. And I'm a big proponent of Toastmasters because you only get better through repetition and, and tweaking and learning. So that was important, but that didn't touch the business side. Right. Um, and so the National Speakers Association, the NSA, I jokingly will tell you the not the listening folks, the speaking folks, the NSA. Um, there's 30 chapters around the country. There's a national organization. That's about the business of being a professional speaker. And, and that was it, you know, I resisted that for a couple of years and now I'm a, I'm a huge believer. I tell people, if you're serious about being a professional speaker, you need to join NSA. All right. There's a, I have so many things here we could go into, but I'm, there's one more big topic I want to talk about. And it goes back yeah. to what we were chatting about with confidence at the beginning. And I'm just curious, this has come up a lot more recently around how we talk to ourselves. So I'm kind of curious, you're, you're running your own business, you're speaking, you're writing books, you're doing all this stuff. How do you speak to yourself in terms of, I, I find that, and this is, again, I'm speaking to me personally and then other folks that, you know talk with, is sometimes there's negative self-talk of like, I'm, I can't do this, I'm, I get frustrated. It's like, I feel like I'm pushing a boulder up the hill do you go through that as well, even as experienced and, and as successful as you've been with your business? And, and how do you deal with that, I guess? So if anyone tells you that they don't go through that, they're probably lying, right? There's a great, there's a great quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. And he said that there's only two types of speakers in the world. He said the nervous and the liars. And, and so to me, if, if you're not, I try to focus on, on goals each year of things that I can work towards, because if, if you don't, the obstacles that pop up can really start to play with your head, right? You might have, you know, Anyone who, who thinks it's going to be a straight line as an entrepreneur has never been an entrepreneur, right? The highs are really high. The lows can be really valley-like. And, and so to me, if, if I have three or four things that I'm committing to for that year, I try to focus on those things. Um, and focusing on those things, you know, keeps those obstacles or those that self-doubting out of the way. Um, you know, I try to focus on the stuff that I can control. And, and I found, I've been in it now for like six or seven years, I've got a mastermind group of other professional speakers that I'm part of. There's there's seven of us now in the group. And, and I can't tell you how important that is. We get together once a month and you have a place that you can bounce ideas off of, right? You can have people that kind of pick you up and validate you. You can learn from other people's mistakes. You can share resources. Um, you realize you're not alone in what you're thinking or how you're feeling. And so having that support and that mastermind, um, to me is a huge way to be able to battle that. Do you do anything around journaling, meditation, any, anything to kind of think about if you had a bad experience, maybe again, negative thoughts crept in, you had a bad day. Do you do anything, I guess, from that self-therapy side of things? You know, I, 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 I guess my, my writing that I do, and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm better than others. The writing helps but I'm not, I'm not a big journal or meditation. 
I've tried both. It's just not not my my jam. But I do think, you know, taking a little time, even if it's not quote unquote journaling, to write down like what I'm grateful for. Like my friend Marcy has got this great little planner that she's created. And so each day at the top of the planner, like the first question is, what am I grateful for today? And so I do, I do think there's really good value in that to, to express that, to acknowledge that there's a lot that we, sometimes we focus on the, on the challenges or the things we don't have, and we don't spend enough time being really, um, really great, really grateful and acknowledging what we do have. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you, when you, I want to go back to the goals for a second. Um, do you just lay those, like, are you getting extremely specific with, hey, I want to do this number of speaking engagements this year or finish this, but like how specific do you really get with your goals? Or are they more kind of, not pie in the sky, but more like, hey, I want to whatever, do the X amount or, the, you know, kind of, hey, if I do X amount, this will be good. But if you don't reach it, you know, hey, I got in the right path. Like how, I guess, I, I'm, I'm not asking the best question here because I'm just kind of curious, like the goals, these sometimes get pie in the sky, sure. kind of big inflated, but. Yeah, I, I try to, I try to, I do have some financial goals that I track each year. I kind of set out the year across, you know, break down the 12 months based on an overall financial goal. Um, so I can kind of track it as I go forward, how, how I'm doing each month. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, building up for a book launch or a tour that I'm doing will be a goal. Um, you know, sometimes it is, it is a book and I find, you know, I, I, I jokingly tell people, you know, if you want to write a book, you only have to do four things. And really the fourth thing is the most important. So the, the first three are pretty easy. You have to have a title. You got to have a cover. You have to have a release date. And maybe that's the most important one. Um, but number four is you've got to share that cover and the release date with everyone you know, like, and trust. Because you know what happens when you share that cover with a release date, Brian? Probably accountability. Yep. You, uh, I can tell you how to write a book, but believe me, once you do those first three, those four, only those four things, you'll figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. Are you taking time? Like, I don't know if you think of like a year, like, okay, it's going to be December. I'm going to sit in December, really focus for the next year. Is that kind of how you do goals? Or you take it by a quarter by quarter basis or? You know, there, there's a great book called The 12-Week Year. So I know there are some people that try to do this process four times a year. So there's 52 weeks in the year, and the idea is that you break down a year into these 12-month, 12 12-week 12 cycles, and then there's a week in between to get to the 52 weeks mm -hmm. of the four. Um, I've got a fellow speaker who swears by that you know, have a certain focus each quarter. Uh, I tend to do it more on like annual goals. So November, December, um, I'm sitting down, I'm really starting to think about what are those things that I'm chasing. Sometimes the goals, like I'm chasing one right now, that's not just a, it's going to take more than a year to get to. So it's kind of charting my process, my progress throughout. Um, but yeah, to me, it tends to be on an annual basis. And that, that works well for me because not a lot of speaking goes on between the second half of December and the first week of January. Mm -hmm. So that's a good chunk for me to kind of take some time away, debrief, set up for, for the following year. So and there's so many other things I, I'd want to get through. Maybe we'll have to do a part two at some point. Um, but that's cool. Um, but let me ask oh, you this. Let's ask this. I got one thing. Oh, go here's, here's the one bit of advice in terms of people starting out. And I wish somebody had told me this, you know, when I, when I was thinking about making the jump is it's never going to be a hundred percent perfect. 
right? And too many times, especially me in the beginning, it was like, I need to get it ideal to make the jump. And so my friend who had spent time in the Navy, he told me this came from the Navy, but who knows? He goes, great, great rule. He goes, 70% perfect, 100% done. And I think that's the type of thing I live by. You know, I've done now 2.0 versions of a few of my books. And part of that is because I realized I can't wait to try to get this thing perfect. Just do the 70% and you can always go back and do a 2.0 or a 3.0. Right. Right. But don't let perfection get in the way of progress. That's a great point. That's probably a good one to to end on because I was going to ask you if there was, and maybe you have other advice if, if someone was getting started, like, is there anything else tactically maybe they should be thinking about as well? Now, um, to me, you're going to meet, I, I think it's important to meet with people in advance that are doing what you are looking to do because they'll be able to give you the feedback or the advice of what they did. If, if you're looking to try to do something, Brian, and you don't see five or six people that are already doing it successfully, that should be a message to you. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm a firm believer in this. You don't want to be a pioneer. Pioneers get all the arrows. What you want to be is a settler. Somebody has already come in and proven. You just come in and settle with maybe a different element. Um, try not to be the pioneer. That's a great point, Stan. Maybe to uh, end on for this conversation. Um, where can folks say hello on online? Where do you where do you, you spend most of the time on LinkedIn, right? I do. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, but um, so find me there. LinkedIn.com forward slash in Stan forward slash Stan Phelps or stanphelps.com. Awesome. Stan, thank you so much. This was a uh, awesome conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Brian. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in, and have a phenomenal day.